good times and the difficult times. It is God speaking to us authoritatively, truthfully, and clearly. And so we stand not to respect a relic, but we stand in honor and worship that the King of Kings is speaking to us. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, and if you need a Bible, we've provided one in the pew, page 639. Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his point, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we all are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art in man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commend commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked while others said we will hear you again on this matter so paul de departed from among them However, 
Some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Join me with, in prayer. Father, you have spoken clearly to us, and we humbly submit ourselves to you, the creator of all things, the giver of the one Savior for all peoples. Lord, this is good news, and we pray that you... Outreach celebration coming up here in just a matter of a couple of weeks, October the 25th through the 29th. And uh, it's going to be just a wonderful time of being encouraged and encouraging our missionary guests. And you see uh, their pictures and names on these posters around our auditorium. And, uh, and so make plans. You'll be, you'll be blessed by it. And uh, if you have kids, bring your kids. We have kids' celebration as well. I do want to highlight one thing in particular, actually two. For you ladies, be sure to buy your tickets for the women's luncheon on that Saturday afternoon right here uh, at the church. And you can buy those tickets from Dana in the back of the auditorium, $7, so be sure to get that. But I also want to highlight, you'll find this uh, Faith Promise Giving Commitment Card in your bulletin. And we're putting those in your bulletins now, making those available to you uh, today and the, in the Sundays leading up to World Outreach so that you can be in prayer, in preparation, and just getting uh, your mind and your heart ready for what God is going to lead you to do in response to our World Outreach Celebration in participating in a financial manner to support world missions. And so take this home, begin thinking about it, pray about it, what, what God would have you to commit, to give uh, for our, our uh, missions budget, uh, in particular for 2018 is, is when we have the calendar year for that, and so that's there for you to take note of and uh, begin thinking through. Sunday, last Sunday, October the 1st, uh, saw the deadliest mass shooting in American history. It was a, a sentence that has become all too common. Orlando last June, Sandy Hook before that, previously Virginia Tech, random acts of violence have become terrifyingly familiar. Last weekend, 22,000 people poured into a Las Vegas music festival totally unprepared for 15 minutes of hell. But hell is what they saw and heard and felt. Over 500 people were injured. At least 59 are dead, savagely ripped from this world, seemingly at random. At this point, we still know really little about the gunman who opened fire on the crowd from the 32nd floor of the Mandolin Bay Hotel. We also know very little about the 60 or 59 people that he murdered. Each life an unexpected and unsearchable tragedy. Who knows how many of the victims were hidden in Christ while they had nowhere to hide. We do not know their families, we don't know the extent of their heartache, but we pray for God to deliver the comfort and the healing and the hope each of them so desperately needs now. As Marshall Seagal writes, we pray that heaven would fall on Las Vegas. When God looks out on a war zone like the one in Las Vegas Boulevard, he despises the violence 
And he prizes the lives of the innocent, especially those who cry out to him in faith. We are reminded of this in Psalm 34, 18, where the psalmist tells us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. As Christ followers, listen, we reconcile this act of violence with knowing that God loves to reveal his stunning mercy in the wake of stunning tragedy. The question is, how will we respond? Will we seize this opportunity to tell people about God's stunning mercy in the wake of such sudden and stunning tragedy? Paul's visit to Athens speaks to this very opportunity that is before all of us in our country. It provides us with important lessons for engaging people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thing we see here from Paul's visit is that he answers this big question for us. It's a question that presses in on each of our hearts and minds. And probably it's a question that is repeated often in our minds. And that is this question, why did God put us here? I'm sure every one of us has wondered that perhaps many, many times. Why has God put me here? We are here to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that simple and that clear. It looks as though Paul's visit to Athens was totally unplanned and unprepared. From a human point of view, Paul's visit to Macedonia had gone rather badly. If you think back to what we have seen the last couple of weeks, the Thessalonians had summarized it well in Acts 17, verse 6, when they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And so indeed, we have already seen in Paul's own journey here, the second missionary journey, he has encountered trials and troubles, one on top of the other. In Philippi, he had been in prison. In Thessalonica, his preaching had caused a riot. In Berea, he was forced out of the town. And when the Thessalonian Jews arrived in Berea to stir up the crowds, Paul's companions, his friends, decided it was time for him to take a cruise to Athens. Luke tells us here in verses 15 and 16, it says, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. In receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, waited for who? His, 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 his missionary team of Timothy and Silas. Now on the surface here, it appears that Athens is totally unplanned. But it was all part of God's sovereign plan for Paul. Have you ever wondered, why did God put me in Kansas City? Why am I here? Why why am I in Kansas City right here, right now? Is it by accident? Regardless of how you got here, why you got here is not by accident. It's all part of God's sovereign plan for your life. Why did God put us here? Listen, I can speak this way for our truth, I mean for our church and for us individually. We are here to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are here in the aftermath of a brutal massacre to offer hope 
to people. To offer them hope in Jesus Christ. Pastor Chris Marlin and his wife Catherine moved to Las Vegas three years ago to serve a church called Grace City. Marlin says, and I quote, We're in a sin city, and the biggest thing we need is for Jesus to break through here. Marlin says he's never seen people in Las Vegas so open to the gospel than they seem to be in the face of this tragedy. We walked the strip and were praying for people and offering prayer. It was the strangest experience I've ever had on the strip. And then my wife and other people went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and were praying for people there, especially at UNLV. People were really shaken up and open to things that they haven't been open to before. Listen, whether we're in Las Vegas or whether we're here in Kansas City, listen, we are here to help people to reconcile this sudden tragedy with God's stunning mercy. But more importantly, we are here to help people to be reconciled to God Almighty through His stunning mercy found in Jesus Christ. Referencing Romans 2.4, Marshall Seagal writes, May every citizen and guest of Las Vegas and everyone watching from a distance not presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. May we all know that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. May the lasting legacy of this tragedy be mercy and not evil. That's what we pray. So how can we be used here in Kansas City where you go to school, where you live, where you work. How can we as Christ followers be used by God for this very purpose? Especially while living in a culture that is tolerant of many gods except the one true living God. So how do we do this? Well, Paul gives us a crash course on bridging the gap with the gospel in the culture in which we find ourselves. So let's unpack it here. In using John Stott's outline to unfold what we see here from uh, the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, notice point number one, what Paul saw. What he saw was a city full of idols. Athens was the most intellectually sophisticated culture in the ancient world. And even in Paul's day, it was still basking in its fading glory. Though Rome held political and military dominance, Athens stood supreme in terms of cultural and intellectual influence. In Paul's time, the city was recognized for its politics, its culture, its religion, its philosophy, its arts, and its beauty. Its stunning architecture was immediately visible upon entering into the city. In fact, standing over the city was the Acropolis, this massive temple made of marble dedicated to the most beloved of the Greek gods. And so Paul seems to be a typical tourist in Athens, walking around the city, taking in the sights and the sounds. And we know this is true from what he says down in verse 23 when he says, as I was passing through. Passing through what? Passing through the city of Athens. So he's doing what all of us would normally do when we go to a city on vacation or on a trip. We're a tourist, we're looking, we're watching, and we're seeing things, and we're taking it all in. Most people entering a city like Athens would have been awed by its beauty and its brilliance. But folks, listen to me. Paul was much, much more than just a typical tourist. 
He was first and foremost a Christ follower who's been awestruck by the beauty and brilliance of God's saving grace on the road to Damascus. And now he's living with missional eyes that impacts how he sees the city of Athens. As a result, Paul sees a city, quote, full of idols. In fact, what struck Paul most was a city, as Luke defines it or describes it, a city that was given over to idols. And that phrase there in verse 16, it carries the idea of the city being buried under idols, being smothered by idols, where there were altars, temples, shrines, statues everywhere to every kind of God imaginable. In fact, historians tell us that the population at this time when Paul visited was around 10,000. And yet, there were over 30,000 idols and statues to unknown and to many other gods that they did name. No wonder one ancient writer sarcastically said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And so from Athens, and bringing it here to America, we too live in a culture that is buried in idol worship. Underneath the sin problems. Underneath the relational problems. Underneath the racial and social problems in our country is a profound worship problem. An idol is anything to which we turn when we need something only Jesus can provide. And even in our own culture, the idols may look differently than they did in Athens. They aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. Listen, today they are substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the one true living God in the human heart. And as Christ followers, we bear the responsibility of destroying such idols in our own lives. And then lovingly pointing them out to our culture so that others may understand that the pursuit of such idols won't satisfy the human heart. And certainly... Such idols do not provide any real answers or lasting hope in the midst of natural disasters such we have seen recently with these hurricanes or in the midst of brutal massacres like Las Vegas. People desperately need the God who made them and the one who can redeem them from this fallen sinful world. So Paul, he doesn't view Athens as simply as a tourist enamored with its beauty. Oh no, he views Athens as a Christ follower dismayed by its idolatry. Which brings us to the second point here. What he felt, what Paul felt, was deep distress. What do you see when you look at Kansas City and across our country? What do you see as people try to make sense of another latest tragedy? As people try to reconcile it, try to cope with it, deal with it. What do you see with your neighbors, your coworkers, when you talk with them? And then what do you feel in your gut, in your heart? After seeing the suffering of his nation, Jeremiah the prophet says in Lamentations 3.51, my eye brings suffering to my soul. And this is what Paul felt when he looked out on Athens. 
Luke says in verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. In other words, Paul felt deep distress when he saw the city was full of idols. His spirit, Luke says, was literally provoked with holy anger and godly grief. In fact, this is the same word that is used to describe how God feels about idolatry in the Old Testament when the Israelites worshipped idols, such as the golden calf that we're familiar with. In, in, in different places in the Old Testament, the same word is used to describe how the, uh, God felt and it provoked the Lord to righteous anger. But understand, that righteous anger was also mingled with love for his people. And so in the same way, Paul felt this deep distress, this great distress. And we can define it this way. It's righteous anger, holy anger, and this heartfelt compassion or brokenhearted compassion. Why? Because Paul was zealous for the glory of God in the souls of people. God himself has told us in Isaiah 42, verse 18, listen to his words. I will not share my glory with another, and I will not share my worship with idols. You see, God has the right to our exclusive allegiance. And so it is right for our God to be jealous when we give that allegiance to someone else or to something else. This is where Oprah Winfrey missed it. And missed it big time. She tells the story that as a teenager, she was sitting in the back of a country church and heard the pastor say, in her own words, God is a jealous God. And she, say, relating the story, she says, if God is a jealous God, I don't want any part of him. And she walked away from her roots by her own admission. You know why? Because she didn't understand who God is. She didn't understand that God deserves all glory and all honor and all worship. And when God doesn't get it from his highest creation, there is grounds for jealousy on his part. This is what drove Paul to go beyond borders with the gospel and to endure the suffering as he proclaimed that gospel. In fact, Paul's response to the idolatry he saw in Athens, I don't know about you, but it's rather convicting. It's very convicting. I'm sure we're all in the same boat where we sometimes respond to our culture with either prideful snobbery or hateful scorn. But Paul was filled with neither. Instead, he felt this deep distress by what he saw. He felt, and he, he literally boiled up within him this righteous anger and this broken-hearted compassion for the Athenians. What Paul saw, it moved him to shed tears and to share truth. He saw a city full of idols that revealed people's rejection of God and their desperate need of the Savior Jesus Christ. And this is the greatest motivator for bridging the gap with the gospel. There is no bigger motivation than this right here. 
being zealous for the glory of God in the souls of people. So let me ask us, including myself, how many of us are deeply distressed that people are worshiping empty idols when Jesus alone is worthy of our worship? Are you zealous to see people turn from idols, false idols that don't deliver on anything and turn to the living and true God? May God give us the heart of Psalm chapter 67, verse 3, where it says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let that be our heart's cry. And that's why we bridge the gap with the gospel. That's why we see with missional eyes. That's why we feel with a missional heart, because we want to see people worship the living and true God, the only God who can redeem them from their destiny of hell because of their sinful. Paul saw the world differently and he felt differently about the idols of the world because his worldview was shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ, which in turn moved him to do something. It moved him to engage people in Athens, which brings us to our third point, what Paul did. And that is he engaged in gospel conversations. The sight of so many people Exchanging the glory of the Creator to worship created things compelled Paul. It moved him into action. And that action was to engage the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke writes in verse 17, Therefore. Therefore. In other words, in light of what Luke tells us in verse 16, what Paul saw, what Paul felt, therefore... He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And that word reason, it's the same word we saw last Sunday in our study in uh, same chapter here in verse 2 when Paul reasoned from the scriptures in Thessalonica. It's the idea of engaging people in conversations. You're discussing the gospel and Jesus Christ with them. You're explaining the gospel to them and you're proving it to them from the scriptures. That's the idea of reasoning. It's a discussion, it's dialogue, but you're the one leading the discussion and you're leading it from truth in God's word, the authority of God's word. That's the idea of reasoning here. And we know what Paul was reasoning about, his topic of conversation with these people. Both in the synagogue and in the marketplace, his topic of conversation was the gospel. He's having gospel conversations. We know this from verse 18 because it says he preached what to them? He preached Jesus and the resurrection. And specifically, where did Paul go to engage people with the gospel? He went to two different places. He went to the synagogue and marketplace to engage people. Paul went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to engage the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and then he went to the marketplace, we're told, every day to engage with anyone who would happen to be there, who would, just, who would give him his, an ear and listen to him and engage with him. Now, immediately we have a... a, a just a great lesson that flies off the pages of Scripture here for us, in which to apply it for our own lives. Because here's, here's our, our temptation. Our temptation as Christ followers is to 
disengaged from culture. But what do we find Paul doing? He's engaging with the culture people. And so we must guard, what we must guard against is not so much our culture engaging us, but us disengaging from our culture. Paul is in Athens, and he deliberately goes to the synagogue and then to the marketplace. Now, in ancient cities like Athens, the marketplace was the center of everything. It was the center of life. In fact, one author describes it this way. The marketplace contained everything. City officials deliberating, artists creating, business people dealing, the media reporting, and the philosophers debating. In other words, everything happened in the marketplace. It was a public space for everything and everyone. And so here's the point. Moved by a city of idols, Paul engaged, not disengaged. And he engaged in gospel conversations with the people of Athens. In other words, here's what Paul's doing. He's bridging the gap. He's bridging the gap. He was proclaiming the gospel. He's presenting the claims of Christ in his resurrection. And he's calling people to believe in Jesus and be saved. And he did this with boldness. And he did it with gentleness. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, A World of Idols. If your life doesn't reflect both sweetness and thunder, you will be either a coward or obnoxious when it comes to sharing your faith. Some people, for example, are good at the ministry of truth, but they are terrible at the ministry of tears. In other words... As believers in Jesus Christ, listen, we need both gentleness and boldness that is shaped by God's grace and God's truth. At some point during this course in the marketplace, this dialogue of conversation, two groups of philosophers encountered Paul, the Epicureans and the Stoics. You're like, who are these guys? Let me briefly explain. The Epicureans were basically atheists forerunners of today's seculars and hedonists. They believed that even if gods existed, they were so far removed from humanity that they didn't have any involvement with our lives. They didn't believe in life after death, and therefore they felt that this life, the one we see and touch with our hands, was the only thing that mattered and that we should just get the most out of it, this life. And since life is about pleasure, according to them, their motto was basically, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's how they lived. That was their philosophy of life. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists or, or fatalists. They believed that everything is God. That God is in the rocks, the trees, and everything. Uh, it, it, which is similar to some branches of Hinduism today. Their attitude toward life was one of resignation. Because the world is controlled by fate. In other words, it's out of your hands, and so you just had to endure whatever came your way, good or bad. And since life is nothing more than fate, which is why they were fatalists, their motto was simply, grin and bear it. There's nothing you can do about it anyway, so grin and bear it. Both worldviews, as you might imagine, were hopeless. Both worldviews were meaningless. And yet most people today usually follow one of these two philosophies without even knowing it. They would never 
verbalize it this way. They would never express it this way. And yet, when you get down underneath why they live the way they do, it comes down to one of these two. But as it did in Athens long ago, the gospel cuts against both of these philosophies. Because if you do what feels good, you'll still die in your sins. And if you grin and bear it, you will still die in your sins. And in both, you'll never know the God who can save you from your sins. So how do you think the Epicureans and the Stoics responded to Paul in the marketplace when they heard him proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection? Well, Luke tells us in verse 18, And some said, What does this babbler want to say? And others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. In other words, get this, they called Paul what? A babbler. They called him a babbler. And that word literally means seed picker. And it was used of various scavenger birds. And so what they are doing by calling him a babbler, they are, in actual, they're, they're, they are comparing Paul to a bird picking up an idea here or there. And doing so without having anything coherent to say about it. No rhyme or reason or logic. And so they regarded what he said about Jesus in the resurrection as worthless and even trivial. Others thought Paul was presenting two new gods for them to consider. One named Jesus and the other named Resurrection. Regardless of being called a babbler, isn't it interesting what Paul does? He just continued to babble on for Jesus about Jesus. Curious about Paul's new gods and teaching, Luke writes in verses 19 through 21, and they took him and they brought him to the Arapagus, Arapagus, I knew I wasn't going to say that word right. Chris did a pretty good job. I was hoping I could follow in his, uh, never mind. <laughs> here's what they said, on, here's what, they brought him to Mars Hill. That's another thing. Saying, may we know, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. The place where they took Paul, as I already mentioned, is known as Mars Hill. It's a hillside near the city, and in Paul's day by then, it had become the sort of religious court in Athens where a council of men were charged with, if you can imagine this, keeping watch over the city's religion and moral ethics. And so they're bringing Paul to Mars Hill, in other words, to put him up there in front of them so they could judge him as whether or not what he's saying is valid or not. Think of Ravi Zacharias giving a talk about the merits of Christianity at Harvard University. That would be somewhat the equivalent of what Paul is walking into here. Now, take note, though, of what they said to Paul. This is interesting. They said, you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Now, that's a statement that still echoes in our culture today. You are bringing some strange things to our ears. 
The reason the gospel sounds so strange to most people today is because we are living in a culture of spiritual confusion. Confusion marks the spiritual understanding of most people today. To the Athenians and to Americans, the preaching of the gospel sounds strange. Albert Moeller writes, In postmodern America, the Christian gospel is strange in its whole and in its parts. Most Americans assume themselves to be good and decent people. They are amused at the notion that they are sinners against God. We assume our need of therapy. The gospel insists on our need of salvation. We want to work it out ourselves. The gospel argues that this leads to death. We want to look within. The gospel points us to Jesus Christ. We want to do our part. The gospel insists, insists that Jesus paid it all. We demand to get what we deserve. The gospel warns that this is exactly what we will receive unless we turn to Christ in faith. Grace is an alien concept in American culture. Sin is almost outlawed as a category. A substitutionary atonement sounds unfamiliar. God in human flesh is too much to take. But this is what we proclaim. These are the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is what we must proclaim. This is what we must engage people in conversations about. So what did Paul preach when he was at the top of Mars Hill? What did he say there? Brings us to our fourth point. Notice what Paul said. He basically, you could summarize it this way. He proclaimed God's story of salvation. And he did this, get this, from Genesis to Revelation. Here's the deal. Athens... Athens knew everything that was knowable except the most important thing. She did not know God or what to do about her sins or where to find peace or how to discover the hope of heaven. Which means it's possible, get this for just a moment in your minds, it's possible, highly impossible, to be highly educated and deeply religious and still be totally ignorant about God. Is that not an apt description of our culture today? To quote another writer, we have become a nation of intellectual giants and moral pygmies. As Paul stood on what is known then as Mars Hill, he faced men who were precisely in that situation. They were highly educated, they were deeply religious, and yet they were totally ignorant about God. And so notice how Paul starts out in verses 22 and 23. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now, what a great introduction that is. Because it reveals, in that little introduction, it reveals the emptiness of their idolatry and yet sets the stage for introducing to them the true and living God. Now, what Paul does here is he begins by building a bridge to where they are spiritually. He didn't denounce them, and he did not attack their 
idolatry. But neither did he affirm its validity. In other words, he didn't affirm them in their sinfulness and in their wrong living. He did not give them affirmation in that. He was careful, but he was also very clear in what he was saying. You might, we could phrase it this way. Men of Athens, as I've been walking about your city, I've noticed that you are very religious, which was true. Just they're worshiping the wrong gods. I even saw an altar dedicated to the unknown God. Hey, this is the God I want to tell you about. The God you worship in ignorance can be known. Let me tell you about Him and how you can know Him. And so that's what Paul begins to do. Notice, he proclaims God's story of salvation, of redemption, the redemption story of salvation from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's amazing. So first, how does this apply to us? What can we learn from this? Let me give you four points here. Number one, start with who God is. Start with who God is. He is the creator of the universe and the sustainer of life. This is where the gospel starts, by the way. With God. Therefore, Paul does not begin with Jesus. He begins with the knowledge of God in creation. And in so doing, notice what else Paul does not try to do. He doesn't try to prove the existence of God. Why? Because people know of God's existence whether they admit it or not. We know God First, through creation. Listen, the universe is the theater of God's glory. And then we know God, that He exists through our own conscience. We are made in the image of God. Why do you think they were idolaters? Idol worshipers. Because we are made, we are created to worship something or someone. And we will do just that. And that's what these people are doing. So Paul says to them in verse 24 and 25, God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. In other words, Paul is saying, you think you can fashion a God. The reality is God has fashioned you and everything around you. God does not depend on you. You depend on God, the creator of the universe and the sustainer of life. And then second, share what God did. First, who God is. He's the creator of the universe. But then share what he did. He created humanity from one man, and he guided history by his own plan. You see, the Athenians believed that they were all, they were cut above all other people. They thought they were superior to all other people because they were intellectual elites. But Paul sets them straight. And he tells them in verse 26, oh no, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, God Paul is reminding them that God didn't just wind up the world and then walk off into the sunset. That is not our God. 
No, God determines how long a nation should take to rise and then fall again. In other words, Paul is explaining to them that our God is sovereign over humanity and history. So share what God did. Number three, affirm why God did it. Why did God do this? He did it so that we would seek Him and discover that He is not far from us. Paul says God rules over humanity and He guides history for a purpose. That purpose is clearly stated here in verses 27 and 28. Look at it, it's beautiful. So that they should seek the Lord. You want, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven words to define God's purpose in our lives. That's it right there. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and we have our being. Also, some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Listen, that's always God's purpose that we would seek Him and discover that He is not far from us. Events of human history have all been ordained to this very end, that people would be motivated to search for God and they would find Him. In fact, God uses catastrophes as a means of urging people to do what? To seek Him. So these recent hurricanes... Tragedies, natural disasters, this latest brutal massacre. This helps explain why God allows things like cancer, wars, violence, outbreaks of evil, terrible natural disasters, brutal tragedies like Las Vegas. And now we are in the midst of an open door, at least this week, perhaps for one other week, to capture people's attention with the gospel because when tragedy strikes like it did last Sunday we want answers don't we especially to the question of what what's everybody asking why last Monday I was watching in fact my wife and I both were watching Sports Nation hosted by Michelle Beadle on ESPN Monday afternoon and when she came on she was just she was emotionally distraught by this tragedy and was searching for answers. And she's expressing this on a sports show. And she's talking about this recent tragedy in Las Vegas. And she is emotionally distraught by it all. She even expressed that she is an atheist and doesn't pray. And yet she was visibly troubled that she could not reconcile the events of Las Vegas with her atheistic worldview. It did not line up. And she is groping for answers. And my wife and I commented on it, and we were just brokenhearted for her because the answer was right there in front of her. God was using this, and he wants to use a tragedy like this to motivate us to search for God and to find him, that he is not far away, but he is near in his son, Jesus Christ. And God uses us, the church, Christ followers, to point people and to show people, here it is. 
God ordains all these things to show people that they need God and to motivate them to search for Him and discover that He is not far from us. God wants to be found. He wants us to know Him as His children. And I love what Paul does. He even takes one of the poets and he quotes their poet who said, we are God's offspring. And that was true. That is, the Athenians, all of humanity, we are, we are, by creation, we belong to God. But Paul was showing them something different, that it's only by redemption that we become God's children. So you tell who God is, you share what God did, you affirm why God did it. But number four is most important. You tell what it means. What does it mean for my life? Jesus is the appointed Savior who is coming to judge the world, so repent before it's too late. Now, to some extent, Paul found common ground with his audience in the fact that they were religious worshipers, but in no way, again, did he affirm their false worship. Paul counters everything about their religion. He tells them it does not lead to a true knowledge of God. In fact, he even goes further and he says, it only condemns you further, your idolatry. And so far from condoning them in their idolatry, Paul boldly declares to them the truth in verses 29 through 31. Look at it. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art in man's devising. Basically, Paul's confronting their false ideas of God. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul concludes his presentation of God's salvation story by calling for repentance of sin and warning of the judgment that is to come. Repentance means to change your mind, leading to a change of life. And Paul is saying we need to change the way we think about God and turn from our idols to God. And so Paul is confronting and he's correcting their wrong views of God. And Paul says the reason to repent is that God has been very patient to overlook our times of ignorance in the past. But he tells them, listen, that ignorance doesn't give us an excuse before God Almighty when we stand before Him. Instead, he says a day is coming. When God will judge the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He raised from the dead. So repent and turn to Jesus for your salvation before it's too late. So how did the Athenians respond to what Paul said? Well, as you might imagine, he wasn't the most popular guy on Mars Hill. The response is found in 32 and 34, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked. They just couldn't get past that one. That was beyond their scope. It didn't fit in their intellectual box. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So they were curious. One and more. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. And so this reminds us that one's salvation is always a work of God. Folks, listen, 
myself and you, us together, we are called to proclaim the gospel. But we must leave the results to God. Regardless of the response, Paul teaches us how to bridge the gap with the gospel in our day. And I know my time is way over, but let me leave you with three action steps that is not in your notes. If you want to write them down, they're coming up on the screen. Quickly here, don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Be deeply distressed by what you see and babble on for Jesus about Jesus. John Stott says it this way, if we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul, this is because we do not see like Paul. This was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all begins with our eyes. And so I ask, when you see this world, when you see your neighbors, when you see your coworkers, when you see the kids you go to school with, how do you see them? Do you have missional eyes? And does that translate to a missional heart that then results in a missional mouth? Number two, proclaim the greatness of God and his story to save people through his son, Jesus Christ. This often means exposing the insufficiency of people's worldviews apart from God. And so a great question to ask people is, how's that working for you? You want to live life this way apart from God? Well, let me ask you, how's that working for you so far? And then number three, seize every opportunity God gives you to bridge the gap. This is why God put us here. Why are you here in Kansas City? Why do you go to the school you go to? Why do you work at the job you work at? Why do you live in the neighborhood that you live in? For one reason. To bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How you got there is immaterial. Why you are there is what's most important, and it's not by accident. Seize the opportunities in the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Give us the desire and the courage to share that message with those whom you bring into our lives. Help us to meet them where they are and with patience and love share with them who you are and who you want them to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise team's going to sing just one chorus. And then after we're done, we'll receive our offering and then be dismissed. But during this time, these next few minutes, let God speak to you and work on your heart. Respond as the Spirit is leading you to respond.